Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see everyone. feels like we, we lose a week to a, a snow day, and it feels like forever since I've seen everyone, which means if we keep getting this kind of snow, we are going to have to make sure you all have snow tires because we're going to have to keep, keep going in the future. We are starting today with this question, who are you? I mean, knowing our identity is a very important thing, and it's an especially interesting question to ponder in our current moment in culture. You know, whether it's in our country and other countries right now, it seems that we are both elevating identity and also obliterating identity all at the same time. You know, on the one hand, identity is huge in our culture, especially when it comes to defining who has been marginalized, who needs to receive preferential treatment, who's been privileged. Age, gender, sexuality, socioeconomics, and ethnicity are all descriptors that our current culture appends to our identity statements. Right? By today's standards, I should be identified as a cisgendered, middle-class, white, privileged male. Acronyms and abbreviations rule our day. And this matters for things like college applications, loans, jobs even, so many areas of our daily interactions. And yet, at the same time, in our culture, identity is malleable. It can change. You can one day identify as one gender, the next day identify as another gender. Jokes abound about this on social media and late night television to the point where it almost seems like physical characteristics and and even ethnicity are more about dreams than they are about DNA. Identity appears to have no rigid forms, no objective realities. It's only beholden to the self-assessed desires of each individual person. We're living in a moment where Identity is elevated and obliterated at the same time as a very confusing moment. You know, when I start a sermon that is mostly about our identity with these observations, not because I want to dive into each and every single one of them, but because I think we all feel this moment, this moment where our our definitions and the ways that we used to understand things are are being challenged and changed and becoming broken and stretched in very uncomfortable and in some ways concerning ways, where identity has become confusing. I also start here because while there's much to discuss and debate and maybe even defend against this current cultural wave of change around identity, because identity matters deeply, I think we also forget how often identity is a confusing topic anyway. You know, if I was to ask you about yourself, if we were at some sort of like work conference and I was to meet you, you'd maybe say something like me, hi, I'm Jane Smith. I'm the vice president of acquisitions at Acme Industrial. And you would want me to know a little bit about your job, how I could relate to you, how we might be able to help each other out. But if I stood next to that same lady at a soccer game and I asked and said, introduced myself, she would say, hi, I'm Jane. I'm little Jimmy's mom. Right? We, we, we have different identities in different moments. If, if I'm in a conversation about education with people, I quickly find out who are the homeschooling people, the public schooling people, the private schooling people. During COVID, there was no mistake who are the people who are for vaccines and against vaccines. You know, if I'm talking to people during the day, I can find out if you're a stay-at-home mom, a realtor, a contractor, an architect, an engineer, or underemployed. You know, if we're talking about sports, I'll find out if you're a Green Bay Packers fan or not, because that's the only categories that matter in the NFL. Tell Jack I said that. Not only do we describe our identities different in each situation, but we we carry ourselves differently based upon how we think that identity should play out. 
I mean, if we're at business, we, we carry ourselves with some sort of level of decorum and professionalism. But you take that same person and you put them in a sporting event or a concert and everything about how they understand themselves changes. Face paint goes on. There's air drumming and head banging. Very different kind of an environment because of how they understand their identity. You know, add this to the fact that, that we have these weird perceptions of how we change in those moments. You know, one of the most fascinating things to me is how that works as a pastor. I can be having a great conversation with someone, hearing all about their life, learning about their family, kind of their needs and deep desires. About every third word is a curse word. And then they find out that I'm a pastor and everything changes. The entire conversation in an instant is different because of how they perceive themselves and their identity in that moment. And how the assumptions they make about me and my identity as though I'm somehow more holy or clean or set apart and different, and maybe that they might be seen as unclean and not good, so they need to change everything up. It's not as though I'm sitting there judging them in that moment. I'm enjoying my conversation with them. Ask my kids. I know all of those words. Add this to your identity. Add this to your identity that your identity really does change over time, right? At one point in time, you were a first grader in Mrs. Zam's room, and then you were a second grader in Mr. Jensen's room, right? Sometimes you're single, committed, single, interested, single, engaged, marriage, flip-flop, flip-flop. It goes back and forth. My wife has been Katie Hurtigan for most of her life, probably equal parts now. She, she almost got stuck in Brazil because her driver's license from Boise, Idaho back in the day used her nickname, Katie Eagie, and her, her passport said Catherine Marie, Katie Hurtigan. Her passport said Catherine Marie Hurtigan. They almost didn't let her out of the country, Right now, she's known as Katie Eagy. And one of one of the joys for me as my life has changed is that whenever I now relate to one of my kids' teachers or I go to their work and I deal with their bosses, is now I'm known as Hannah's dad, Gabe's dad, Abigail's dad, Gideon's dad, Hosea's dad. I'm identified by them. Identity is a big part of our life, and for a good reason. Who you are matters. We should not be surprised then that a world that doesn't know and love and trust God is looking in a thousand different directions to try to find an identity for themselves. They're looking to different identity statements to feel important, to feel cared about, to to be loved. They, They want to be known and loved and are looking for how to do that. We may may see from this perspective how, how woeful and inadequate those attempts are and how broken they might be, but they are looking for something that is very normal, something that you and I, we have found in Jesus Christ. Now, our next sermon series, we're going to go through and tackle this idea of identity again and again. Identity is a large issue in Scripture. It's a huge deal for Paul, and it oozes out of every corner of the letter to the Ephesians. And that's where we're going in this next section is the letter to the Ephesians. We just looked at Paul in his letter to the Romans, and this time we're going to look at the letter to the Ephesians. And I hope you get to have an interesting time kind of comparing and contrasting the difference and the different goals that Paul has for these two different groups of people. But the beauty is that at its core, he's talking about the same God. And that is the same God that he goes back to, especially in the letter to Ephesians, to talk about this, about how we are found in Christ that our identity is grounded as those who are in Jesus Christ. You know, we talked about a little bit in the Roman series, uh, this idea of, of, of why Paul was writing to them and how Paul knew them a little bit. We saw, remember that last chapter, that huge long list of names? But really, most, most, most importantly, Paul was trying to set the stage for himself to come, to visit and share with them a little bit more about this Jesus that he knew and loved to encourage their faith, as he said. 
Well, here in Ephesians, we see something very different. We're going to talk about it a little bit more in a future sermon, but Paul knew them very well. In fact, as Paul was on his missionary journey coming back from Corinth, he stopped in Ephesus and spent almost two and a half years there. So he knew the Ephesians very well. He knew and loved their leaders with a deep love. We've also talked about how whenever we come to, to a section of scripture, we can tackle it in different ways. We could tackle it as one big overview sermon about the whole thing all at once. We could tackle it in chapters, kind of like we did in Romans. We could tackle it kind of in medium-sized chunks, or we could go down to really small pieces. In Ephesians, we're going to do those latter two. We're going to take medium-sized chunks and then very small pieces. We want to try to wring everything that God has in this letter out to see what he's doing here. In fact, we'll be in the letter to the Ephesians from now clear up till September. And so we have this beautiful moment where we see identity come out again and again. In fact, this is exactly where Paul starts. Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Even here at the very beginning, we can see how, how big of a deal identity is for Paul. And he starts out by identifying himself. He says that he's an apostle. Now, now, that word just means messenger, but we know it takes on a special meaning for the original 11 disciples, Judas not being included in that group, and then Paul, as they have a very special role to take. And Paul helps explain here how unique it is. And he says that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. And not only is he a commissioned messenger, but he was commissioned none other by Jesus himself for the sake of sharing about Jesus. You know, and in case you wonder where you go to sign up for that kind of job, Paul says that it was by the will of God that he was made his messenger. It was not necessarily his own desire, but rather God's choice in appearing to him and commissioning him and sending him out on, on this journey. And as you read through the job description of the apostles and what their lives end up looking like, you can see why it had to be commissioned directly from God himself, because it was not an easy road for them. Importantly, we see here in Ephesians that Paul is exercising his task as a messenger and an envoy to a very particular people, to the Ephesians. And he specifically calls them the saints and the faithful in Christ Jesus. You know, saints may sound funny to us and to our ears, especially if you have a Catholic background. You could barely imagine a normal person being called a saint. But really, that word is one of the New Testament writers' favorite way of talking about those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. We are the saints, the holy ones is what that word means. That is part of our identity. And through Jesus' righteous life, his death on the cross, his resurrection in power, we are brought into an identity that is seen as holy, right and fitting to be in relationship with our God because of Jesus Christ, and joined to him today by his very Holy Spirit. And that's not a small piece of our identity. And yet Paul continues on, and we begin to see, even at the very beginning part of Ephesians, the breadth of this magnificent beauty of our identity in Jesus Christ. As he starts by saying right here, he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. You know, we'd expect him to say, who have faith in Jesus Christ, not who are faithful in Christ Jesus. You know, he is saying that we are the ones who have the quality of faith and are demonstrating our faithfulness in Christ Jesus. He's not talking here about an action that we have taken. And I think we so often gloss over this particular statement. Now that's true. We have and should be the ones who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. But here Paul's talking about identity. He's talking about something that we aren't doing, but because we are found in Jesus, we can have the quality of being faithful. That's how we live it out. He's talking about identity. He's saying that we are in Christ. 
which is why we've been able to live faithfully or ever able to live faithfully. And this is one of his main points that he'll come back to as we continue to work our way through Ephesians. And he'll come back to it even here in Ephesians 1.3. But before verse 3, we have Ephesians 1.2, where we have this beautiful prayer that Paul gives for the Ephesians, even here at the beginning. He wishes for them grace. Now, this prayer is very similar to how Paul starts out in Romans 1.7, 1 Corinthians 1.3, 2 Corinthians 1.2, Galatians, Philippians, 2 Thessalonians, Philemon. It's one of his favorite things to do at the very beginning of a letter is to pray for those that he's writing to and to seek grace for them, God's unmerited favor in providing salvation for them through Jesus Christ. What a, what a sweet start to a letter uh, to, to ask God for that. He also asked that they might have peace. The, the very thing that John Mitchell preached about several weeks ago, this shalom from God that we only find through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> grace that comes from God's good work that results for us in peace in our life. But for Paul, in simply beginning to think this through, identifying who the Ephesians are, those who are, are holy saints, and, and those who have, have become faithful in Christ Jesus, as he's praying for them, he can't help but burst into a eulogy, a good word about how God is so magnificent. He says this, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And this should really read, Blessed is... God. It's a statement, not a hope, not a wish. God is blessed because he is the Father and God of our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, Paul here in the very beginning of Ephesians begins to put together, quote, a kaleidoscope of dazzling lights and shifting colors, as one scholar has said. The beginning of Ephesians is so jam-packed with different ideas and concepts and words, trying to grasp at the beauty of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. As one commentator has said, the abundance of word does not denote verbosity. Paul's not just speaking to use words. But instead, it is an attempt to use a multiplicity of words to praise God for his supernatural plan and acts that are almost beyond description. That's why we're going to spend the first four weeks in this series just in this first sentence of Paul's. It's such an important section here that Paul, when he begins to burst forth, starting in Ephesians 1.3, goes all the way from 1.3 to 1.14 is one sentence. Right? Paul, Paul is a junior high composition teacher's nightmare. He has these long run on sentences, yet he's trying to grasp at the beauty of what God has done. In fact, he gets us through the whole first chapter in just three sentences. The third sentence runs from verse 15 all the way to the end of the chapter. You know, Paul, Paul here in this section is giving us a very typical Hebrew blessing. It's how the Old Testament writers would have thought about this. We see this in Psalm 72 where he says, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. So we start here in Ephesians 1 thing and we say, say what is Paul really telling us here? You know, what is he saying about this section? And we start by saying, who is giving these benefits? Who's giving these benefits? And we see that it is God. God here is both the object and the subject. He is the object of the praise that Paul is proclaiming and inviting us into with him. And he is the subject of the blessings that are being given. You know, who is, is God giving these blessings to? He says to all believers, to the Ephesians, to me and you. He's given us something. And what 
has he blessed us with? He says here, with every spiritual blessing. No wonder Paul is going off on this really long sentence. Can you even begin to comprehend how to describe every spiritual blessing that God has given to us in Jesus Christ? Paul is grasping at ways to try to help us understand the magnitude of the beauty of God seen in Jesus Christ. And no doubt that is part of what Paul wants us to begin to understand throughout this entire letter. And no wonder he can barely contain himself that he's using so many words that commentators have to talk about it again and again and deal with what he's doing here. And yet there's something that we want to watch out for. And we we have to ask the question, where has God blessed us? Where has he blessed all believers in the Ephesians? And we read here in the heavenlies. Now, you might want to connect that with spiritual blessings in the heavenlies, as though it's telling us again where these blessings are from. That's a little redundant. When you think spiritual blessings, you already think about things that aren't from here. So, in fact, what he's telling us is where these blessings occur. They occur in the heavenlies, which you can see already how that could be a path that would get us off, where we might go down a trail of thinking about some sort of prosperity gospel or way that we might need to receive everything today and now, and how the Ephesians, me and you and other Christians might actually become depressed about the very thing that's bringing Paul joy. Uh, This reality that we may not see it today in full, all at once and now, but it is assuredly done for us in Jesus Christ. Every spiritual blessing God has given us. That is true and sure today, as sure as God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. In fact, those two ideas are linked. His very resurrection lets us know that this is sure for us in our future. We have the down payment, as Paul is going to say later in Ephesians 1.13, but it is praiseworthy today in the ways that we see God beginning to move it in our lives, see it burst forth in glorious displays of the future hope we have in the new heavens and the new earth. But this morning where I really want us to slow down and focus is this last reality. How has God blessed us? We see it here again, in Christ Jesus. And this idea for Paul being in Christ Jesus is an amazing statement. Paul's already used it once in 1.1. He's using it again here in 1.3. I love this statement by the author Jerry Bridges. He says, union with Christ, to be in Christ, is the most basic identity of a Christian. So much so that all other answers to the question, who am I, are based on or draw from that identity. And we see that so clearly as we look at the letter to the Ephesians. Paul uses, if we want to just take that phrase, in Christ Jesus, he uses that phrase 13 times. But if we want to count all the phrases that are similar, in him, in whom, in the Lord, and put those all together, it's 39 times. And almost all of those occur in chapters 1 through 3. Paul is trying to show us the beauty of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ and our identity there. Even more so, we see this phrase, this Greek phrase for being united with Christ that's only used here in Ephesians 4.3 and 4.13. There's a reason why our, our, our discussion and our sermons on Ephesians is titled In Christ. This letter is screaming that that is our most basic identity and from which all of our value and understanding should come from. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be in Christ? We are going to examine that throughout the letter to the Ephesians, and we're going to see in chapters 1 through 3, Paul spend this time simply asking you and I to live in the reality of what it means to be found in Jesus Christ. 
explaining again and again the beauty of what God has done for us before he gets to chapters four through six, where he begins to show us all the beautiful ways that that identity plays out in our life with one another and a watching world. This idea of being in Christ is not just unique to Ephesians. We see it throughout the New Testament, largely from Paul, but we see it in places like this, 2 Timothy, where Paul says, he, God, gave us grace in Christ Jesus before the ages began. You know, our identity in Jesus Christ means God did something before he even created. It means that God looked and knew about me and you, and he said, grace, not condemnation. He said, love, not wrath. That's amazing. That means our identity is built on something unshakable, immovable that happened before you and I did anything. It was because of God's choice to give us grace that we are identified in Christ. Or as we just saw in Romans, Romans 8, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ Jesus, we are loved by God with a special love, an inseparable love, a love where nothing in this earth, nothing in the heavens, no amount of power could ever stop his pursuit and his love of me and you. God's loving kindness is an enduring, pursuing, and never-failing kind of love for you and me in Jesus Christ. And that is true because of our identity in him. That's an amazing statement. How secure are we because we have that kind of God? You know, for our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, God did two amazing things. For starters, he took our sins and put them on Jesus Christ, that he would bear them and bear that penalty on the cross for our sake. And then God did something amazing and took the very righteousness of Christ and put it on us, that we might be seen before God as holy and righteous in Christ. And seeing us in his righteousness, he smiles. He smiles at me and you very lovingly as a father. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Being in Jesus means that we're not just being changed, but we made something completely new. And this new thing that we're being made into means that we can now be found as beloved sons and daughters, brought back into right relationship with our God and good Father, that we might walk with him. And all the promises of God find their yes in Christ Jesus. That is amazing. Just when you think it can't get better, we find and realize that in Jesus Christ and in our identity with him, all the promises of God are promised to be given to his people eventually. Every covenant that he's made from Adam to Noah to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and Jesus, because of what Jesus did are fulfilled in him. And now we find that all of his promises are yes for me and you because we are in that same relationship. It's beautiful. 
But God not only says that, but he promises even more. He says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. We can be assured that whatever we need today, God will give to us to walk out this ambassadorship that we have now, to do it well towards him, that he might not be put to shame and he might receive glory. But not only are our physical needs and very real needs, but also our spiritual and emotional needs, he promises The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We can find ourselves at rest and at peace because of what Jesus has done, knowing that we don't need to strive to do that anymore. By no means, it's not everything that Scripture has to say. I mean, if we turn to Ephesians, we begin to just grab a couple of these statements from the very beginning, we can see that it only gets better and better, and better the more you read about your identity in Christ. In Ephesians 1.4, just a couple passages ahead, it says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Just next week, we're going to talk about this reality that God chose me and you before he created anything. You were not an afterthought, nor was your salvation a begrudging necessity. God, in seeing me and you and knowing us, chose to create and chose a plan that would require him to come, be embodied as the very God-man for the rest of eternity because he knows us and loves us and wants you to be in relationship with him. He saw us and knew our weaknesses intimately and still loved us and provided for us. And we see in Ephesians 1, 7, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Our sins are washed away, we're told, and we are, we are forgiven for all of our trespasses before our God. And we're given the hope of a marvelous future, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 6, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Today, we live with the beginning of that reality of being seated in heaven with Christ Jesus because of our identity in him. We are seen by God as beloved sons and daughters, priest kings and priest queens, whose future of worshiping face-to-face with our God is secure because of who Jesus is and our identity in him. That is amazing good news for me and you. That identity wraps up all the things we could ever want and ever need. And amazingly, not only does this identity in Christ have a marvelous multitude of outcomes and purposes in God, but it is utterly transforming for me and you. Paul is not going to let us forget that. The last half of this letter to the Ephesians is all about that new identity and that identity and how it works out in our lives. This is a quote from John Stott. He says, a new life in Christ leads inevitably to a new lifestyle with a new value system and a new moral standards. Jesus sets before us a choice between two value systems, his own and the world's. The world is concerned with conformity, conventions, rules, and regulations, but Jesus goes straight to our hearts and and says that we are to have a pure heart and says also that where Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I mean, the world says things like this. The world says that sex is for fun, enjoyment without commitment. But Jesus says sex is for love and enjoyment within commitment. The world says give as good as you get. Jesus says love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Do good to those who hate you. Overcome evil with good. Our concern as followers of Jesus is neither with a religion called Christianity 
nor with a culture called Western civilization, but with a person, Jesus of Nazareth, the one and only God-man who lived a perfect life of love, died on the cross for our sins, bearing in his own person the condemnation that we deserve, was raised in triumph from the grave and is now alive, accessible and available to us through the Holy Spirit. He is also coming again one day in sheer magnificence that every knee should bow to him. That is the person with whom we are concerned. Friends, there's so much more that we're going to examine about the beauty of our identity in Jesus Christ through this study. My goal this morning is to begin to whet your appetite, to begin to make you long to hear more about the beauty of who you are in Jesus, how your identity of being wrapped up with him is all you could ever want and all you will ever need. I've heard some people encourage, encourage people to think of themselves first you know, as Christian engineers or Christian teachers or Christian dads, which is a good thing, but at times it, it begins to miss the mark because it can limit our identity down to some sort of self-proclaimed alliance, which at times can have a religiosity that, that hides our reality. We're not concerned with religion, as John Stott said. We're concerned with a person. We're concerned with our identity as being in Christ because that is so much deeper than our choice because it's grounded on a choice that God made for us, for me and you, and to to bring us into this identity through his amazing work in Jesus Christ. I'm also hoping this morning to begin to encourage us, perhaps, if possible, as Paul would say, to find some compassion for a world that is desperately trying to find their identity. A world that in their blindness is looking everywhere but the one place that they can find their true identity. They're looking to their sexuality, their family history and status, their physical body, even their ethnic heritage. All of those uniquenesses are beautiful things that are to point us to our true identity in Jesus Christ. And you and me, we have a responsibility to share the beauty of who Jesus is, how he is our identity and how he can be their identity as well. Today, you should, should leave wondering what it means to be in Christ and with a glimpse of the beauties of what God has done for us in that glorious reality. I pray that, that, that what we see through Ephesians is how it is one long, beautiful gospel message meant to make me and you fall to the ground on our knees week after week and worship to our God for what he has done for us in Christ Jesus. You know, at the unconscious and the most decisive level, to be in Christ Jesus is God's sovereign work alone. From God, you are in Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians 1.30. But at our conscious level, being in Christ Jesus is of our own action, and it is through faith in him. Christ dwells in our heart, Paul says in Ephesians 3.17, through faith. The life that we live in union with his death and life, as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, we live by faith in the Son of God. We are united in his death and resurrection through faith, as Colossians 2 says. This union with Christ, finding our identity in him, is the ground of everlasting joy. And it is offered for free in Jesus If you are here this morning and you are seeking for your identity, who are you? Where are you found valuable? I'm begging you to come to Jesus Christ. 
Find your identity in the very God-man who loved you enough to be permanently enjoined with humanity that we might see and know God rightly and that he might deal with our problem of sin and bring us back into relationship with himself. And if you already treasure your identity in Christ, look expectantly to God throughout this series. Read through Ephesians yourself again and again, asking God to show you the miracle of your identity in Jesus Christ. That's what I want to encourage you. If you're a believer this morning, come together with us and take communion and the bread and the cup, remembering that our identity is found in nothing we brought, but in something he gave, his very self for our sins, that we might know him and be found in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord God, what a, what a marvelous thing, Lord God, and it feels like stepping onto holy ground to know that we are found in Christ Jesus. That, that in all the things that he did as the last Adam means that we too get to walk into that sonship, that beloved childhood with you as a good father because of everything Jesus did. Lord God, would you help us to rest in our identity in Jesus Christ? What a, what a sweet thing it is to know that our identity is found not in all that we do and not that all that we are, but in what you are and what you have done. Would you help us to rest there? And then as Paul says here in Ephesians, find that we are faithful in Christ Jesus, not faithful to earn what you have done, but by knowing you and resting in this identity, we find that we walk faithfully before you being sanctified by your Holy Spirit. Lord God, would you let that be true for all of us here? It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.